Welcome to Built to Play, your weekly dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Gabali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This is our last episode of the year, so as a special holiday gift to you all, we only have interviews. That's right. No news this week, so you won't be hearing about the VGX, the Let's Play Crackdown on YouTube, or EA's struggle to produce a game that works. You also won't be hearing about some of Mighty Number no. 9's backers being terrible people, or that Telltale is making a Game of Thrones adventure. All of that is completely uninteresting, and we wouldn't cover it anyway. We're practically... It's... We practically couldn't be bothered to cover it. Instead, we're talking to professionals. That's designers, professors, psychologists, historians, and authors. It's a science and history week on Built to Play, starting with the science of cute selfies. A week ago, Armin and I went down to the Winter Bit Bazaar. Uh, once a season, the bazaar showcases games and art just west of downtown Toronto. We ventured into the back room. Away from the cold and snow. Because we saw bright light, a camera, and pixelated photos. Behold, the Interstellar Selfie Station, run by Toronto designer Christine Love. It's like a photo booth that prints photos of yourself that are legally dissimilar by the ones produced by the Game Boy Camera. Which, when you consider the fact that the Oxford English Dictionary named Selfie the word of the year, Year, is an idea we're pretty into. Eventually, the station will be a mobile app, so it's essentially a duotone blocky Instagram filter. I was talking to her at the bazaar when I thrust the microphone into your hand. Yep. We'll talk about selfies, right? Yeah. Okay, just remember to test the levels. Um, no, and I just perfect. Hello? Uh, okay, I think we're going to be good. All right. I was originally working on a game that was sort of like an FMV game with um, a sort of Game Boy, um, Super Game Boy aesthetic to it, but I found that like the most fun thing was just having it hooked up to my camera and just playing around with them and taking screenshots of it. And I realized the game is an interesting part. The, the Super Game Boy camera aspect of it is. So I decided to say hell with the game. I'll just uh, I'll just give everyone the um, uh, the camera. The joy of the camera. Exactly. It's, it's actually interesting because I remember before I saw it, because you started tweeting about like tweeting out pictures of it, and I realized like a week before I saw those, I was actually looking on like the iOS app store or something like that, and I get, like people do actually want that, which is cool to me. I guess. Yeah, there's sort of you know there there are apps that do sort of um, a similar like very classic um, Game Boy camera t- type thing, but nothing does say the colorization as well, which is just like this is what you get if you pl- if for some reason you plugged a Game Boy camera into a Super Game Boy, which no one did, but if you did do it, it turned out with awesome colors. It's really cool, and the other cool thing that it does is it makes animated gifs Vine style, which is just. I don't know. It's something that I really want. To add, listen, in, in selfie technology, you have to start adding animation. This is, I think, this is the new wave of selfie technology. And just kind of about, I guess, just about selfies for a second. So, selfies have become this really, I don't know, like, I don't want to say big thing. They become a thing recently. Well, you know, it's uh, the word of the year. Um, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot of talk about them. I, I'm just, I guess there's something to, like, Seeing yourself in this old way because you couldn't really you couldn't really take a selfie with a Game Boy camera unless you were to spin it around. You could. It had a little um. You could spin it around, but the problem is you can't get your pictures off of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like there's no way to uh, easily get a picture off that thing. Uh-huh. And how have people been reacting to I guess, your photo booth, your 
people have been really excited about it. It's it's um, I've been getting a really positive reaction. And is it because you called it a print club, which makes me think it's more it's less by photo booths and more by like the Japanese kurikura type thing? It is. I mean, it, it does stickers in the same style. Does it? It does not. Um, it does not make your skin whiter, your eyes bigger, or insert text over it, but it does give you... How much glitter can you put on that? You bring the glitter yourself. Okay, DIY glitter. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. Christina Love designed visual novels such as Hate Plus and Analog A Hate Story. The interstellar selfie station will take off on iOS and Android in the spring. Moving from outer space to the ancient past, we also met Jesse McGibney at the Bit Bazaar. He's working on a sword and sandal game about the ancient Greeks called Apotheon. They only showed up the multiplayer, but I talked to him about the mythological single player and moving from all the way from cold Saskatoon. Okay, so tell me a bit about uh, tell me what your game is. Uh, so this is Apotheon. It's a uh, uh, action RPG set in ancient Greece using uh, classical Greek pottery uh, as an art style. Um, so it's very uh, melee focused, lots of sword swinging and spears and arrows and fighting gods and monsters and, and uh, stuff like that. Uh, today we're showing off uh, local multiplayer, which we just added in. So kind of a, a couch competitive uh, fun times like that. But we do also have a, a very extensive single player campaign, um, large open world. You know, you're getting equipment and gear and armor and new abilities and weapons and stuff like that. So. All right. So what brings you down to the Bit Bazaar? Uh, well, we uh, applied uh, a couple of months ago. We, we heard about it from before. Uh, I'm actually out of Oakville, but my partner just moved in from Saskatoon. So now that we're both kind of in the same area, we thought we should start going to more uh, kind of indie community stuff in Toronto. When did he move out from Saskatoon? Uh, last month or two months ago, I think. Yeah, in October, right. So how are you guys working before and why, why so we're, we're both from Saskatoon uh, but like I said I'm in Oakville right now but we've always been working remo remotely so just over Skype and stuff like that because we're only a two man team it's not that difficult um, any more people it would start getting harder to juggle but with the two of us it's, it's not that bad so when did you come from Saskatoon uh, I came after high school which was 2005 and I've been in, in Oakville for uh, I went for art, art school at uh, Sheridan um, and I graduated 2009, and I'm waiting for my girlfriend to graduate <laughs> this year. So I'll be moving to Toronto this year, I hope. All right. Um, what, what, kind, what kind of town is Saskatoon? I mean, we, out here in Toronto, we really get a sense of yeah. there's, Mon there's only really three cities in the country, and that's Vancouver, Toronto, and, Mo and Montreal. Nothing and in the middle, yeah. Now, uh, I think it's like minus 46 right now there, so I'm kind of glad not to be there in the winter. Um, it, is a, it is a really nice place. Um, Especially if you like, uh, you know, theater and activity, like, um, you know, cycling and jogging and running and skiing and stuff like that. It's a really good active city. Uh, but other than that, there's not a whole lot there. <laughs> Does it have its own kind of game scene? Uh, half of it was my friend Lee, and then he just left. So uh, there's a pretty big um, uh, mobile studio, uh, Noodle Cake, is out of Saskatoon, and they did some really big uh, uh, iPhone games and stuff like that. But uh, other than that, there's not too much... Uh, gaming community there. The, the government doesn't really support it in terms of grants. Um, they like supporting agriculture and mining and stuff like that, and not so much, you know, video games. But you know, what are you gonna do? So, so now now that you're here, have you have you managed to kind of you've been here for a couple of years now? Have you integrated yourself in the Toronto community? Uh, because I'm in Oakville, it's kind of still out of the way still. Uh, but I've been going to you know more 
you know, gamer camp, and uh, I'm starting to go a bit bizarre, and I'm just trying to come out more, um, just trying to meet the meet the people, and uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, how'd you get into making a game based on ancient, uh, ancient Greek pottery? Mm. It's a, it's kind of a weird story. It started off as a, like a sci-fi game originally. We wanted to do like kind of an open world side scroller, uh, using a, a sci-fi setting, and then I kind of wanted to add in sci-fi mythology into it, and then that kind of turned into just regular mythology, and then eventually we settled on the art style, which seemed like a no-brainer because it, it, you know, it basically had to look at the pots and be like, how can these move? Because they're already, you know, they're already side-scrollers. They're all really easy to draw. Like, they're all black and white. So the, the production is really easy. Um, and, yeah, we just kind of fell into it. Uh, and we're really surprised that no one has really done it before uh, that we could really tell. Well, there is God of War, technically. Yeah, but it's not in a, in a classical Greek uh, pottery art style. And it, it's more like Hollywood mythology so ours is, I think, fairly faithful to, um, like, actual Greek mythology in terms of stories and characters and uh, and that kind of stuff. We're trying to stay pretty historically uh, close. <laughs> so you will be pulling from some of those uh, old Greek myths? Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you're definitely fighting, you know, different gods and characters and monsters and stuff like that from Greek mythology. Uh, and a lot of the weapons and equipment and armor are from uh, Greek history. So lots of Iron Age and Bronze Age stuff. Are you pulling from any myths directly? Uh, sort of. <laughs> it's it's more kind of Greek canon as opposed to specific myths. So it's a lot of kind of timeline stuff and references to, you know, the creation of the world and who the gods are and what other myths they've been involved in. But the, the game itself is kind of its own, uh, its own take on kind of the mythology in general. So you you you've been in Sheridan for, for how long? How was um, what did you take there, and what was the program like? Well, I took uh, illustration. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, it was kind of what you make of it, uh, because illustration was very focused on editorial illustration, you know, for magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. And I really wanted to be in games, so I it took a lot of kind of trying to fit assignments where they didn't really fit, and kind of trying to persuade the teachers to let me get away with it. Um, but our first game, uh, Capsized, which came out in 2009, that would actually started as a school project, uh, as a fourth-year project. Um, so it did kind of make it work, but as a, as a program itself, like I learned a lot in terms of discipline, but uh, it really was a lot of self-taught stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Jesse McGivney is the artist on Apotheon. Now, McGivney moved from... Saskatoon to Toronto, Ontario to go to Sheridan College. He tried to learn a bit about game design on his own, but there are actual programs in Ontario that teach game design. Most of them have been at small colleges like George Brown, but big universities are also adding game design to their roster. It's about time, too. The Electronic Software Association of Canada says that Canada has the third largest video game industry in the world. That's about 14,000 workers in 247 video game companies. And these companies constantly need new, educated employees. Let's start with the University of Toronto. We had a chance to speak with Steve Engels, who ran the first game design classes at Canada's largest university. I just knew that I had been hearing from the students that they wanted to have a game program or a game design program. And 
I was being told at the time by my departments that I'd been doing a good job, but they wanted to see me do more curriculum development. So I figured, okay, you know, the one contribution I can be, I can do is give the students sort of a champion for the cause and, and give them sort of somebody who can, I guess, allow them to do the game design they want as part of an actual course instead of just for fun. And how did that program look in its first year? Um, well, it was pretty basic. It was mostly, I, it was based off of the structure that I had seen from a comparable course down in North Carolina. And so it was trying to model the basic milestones that any game development process has. So pitch, design, alpha, beta, and final release. Um, yeah, it started off being pretty simple as we were just, you know, getting people trying out making games. So looking back looking back now, those games could have been well, the the students weren't making anything that was really complex at the time because we were still trying to figure out what we were doing. What have you take what caused you to kind of uh change parts of those programs and what what have you kind of you mentioned the arts aspect. Um what else have you kind of pulled in? So in terms of what we figure out to change you know, none of us as profs really know what's, what's going to work. Well, I mean, we hear things from other people and we we read things, but, you know, since each of us has our own little style and since all of our students are always different, we always try things and then we don't find out that they're not going to work or that they're going to work until after we've done them. Um, so over the years, I've found out things like we have a theme for our games and, you know, figuring out how to give a theme that allows people to be at the same level when they start the course without restricting people too much in terms of what they can make um, is always tricky. Um, and the things that we've changed over the years, so we've, yeah, we've integrated more with OCAD to provide our programming students a chance to work with students in art and design, you know, make games better, also like figure out how to interact with people who are also part of the game process that they're not used to interacting with. Um, we've changed our assignments so that instead of having assignments at the beginning to get people up to speed on the technical tools, we actually do game jams instead so that people will actually spend an entire day on the weekend coming in, making a game from 10 until 4, and what they make is basically their assignment instead. Um, we've also brought in guest speakers. So instead of just us being the main, the main voice of authority on what's working and what's not in their games, uh, we actually bring people from industry to come in to give feedback and critiques, you know, to give people more of that real-world perspective. Oh, gosh, what else have we done? <laughs> uh, it's just been a lot over the years. Um, oh, yeah, we we do a final showcase at the end of the year as well. So all the games that people make, we actually have them exhibited to the public so that their final mark in the course is partly dependent on how the public reacts to their game, not just what we think. Um, and so we do a showcase where we invite people from the game design industry and the general public to come by and evaluate their games. And we kind of make it into a bit of a party so that basically the game community knows that once a year there will be this show where student games from graduating students will be available for people to check out, you know, to see what kind of young talent we're generating at the time. What would you say the course is lacking right now? What would you like to change? Well, hmm. I guess we could use more people to teach it. 
Um, right now, one, one of the big problems is that the waiting list for our computer science, or for our game design course, at least in my department, is actually bigger than the course enrollment itself. And this is after having doubled the size of the class. So there's a huge demand for people who want to do it, but then there's just not enough people to actually to actually field the classes. Um, but that's a general problem these days in computer science programs across the world, that our enrollment numbers are higher than our ability to hire new instructors to teach them. Um, what else I would change? I guess it would be nice to have... I've been trying to integrate, you know, people with certain expertise to come in and actually deliver some of the content, because while I'm able to talk about certain areas of game design, there are some areas that I'm weaker at, and it's such a diverse topic that it's difficult to have somebody who can be an expert in everything. So, in the same way that we brought sort of students from OCAD and students from U of T together so that they can unite their expertise in single projects, it would be nice if we could get more involvement from you know, instructors from other universities and people from industry to come in and actually deliver some of the course content in addition to evaluating some of the games. Now, as you mentioned, I mean, it is kind of a culmination of a lot of skills and yep. as such does function more like a project. Why do you think it's valuable to teach game design at a university level? Well, I guess I've got a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of people who do go into computer science because they just want to make games. Um, and for a lot of people who want that, they don't really, like people don't always realize how the industry is or what that's like in real life. And so by giving them this, it gives them sort of a flavor of what they can expect in the real world if they decide to make video game design part of their future career plans. And and so we can actually, like by getting a preview of this, they can see how hard it can be. Um, it's rewarding, but it can also be really grueling and and it can take a lot out of you. Um, and so people who get a chance to take my course get a chance to see a little bit of what that's like and decide if they really want to make that their, their major career choice. Computer science is usually about you know making things that are very practical, but being able to make games allows you to do something, like you get to create something kind of fun and tangible and things that people in general appreciate beyond just computer science. UFT has been lucky. They have a final year course that works, but not get a degree. Meanwhile, Nick Graham at Queen's University is pushing for a whole stream of their software design program to become more games-focused. He has four courses running, but the review board isn't quite ready to put the final stamp on a program. Okay, so the basic deal is we have a program called um, Software Design. It's um, our lead um, computing program with a software focus. And um, we have... Um, Within that, um, two streams. One is the straight software design stream, um, and the other is the one focusing on gaming. Um, for the gaming stream, we've introduced four new courses, um, which are all devoted to gaming, and those are in addition to existing courses uh, such as uh, AI and graphics and all those sorts of areas. So it's quite a comprehensive program now um, as, a, as a plan within um, software design. All of those courses as of this year are now running and uh, they're scheduled for next year and for indefinite. So the, the stream is up and running. What the discussion has been about is, um, is really what, uh, what winds up being written on students' diplomas in the end. <laughs> and um, 
And so the plan was from the beginning that they would get the degree in um, software design, but that there would be a couple of extra words in there saying something like um, with specialization in game development. Okay. And so um, that's the part that has, you know, we've been, it's a, universities are conservative and kind of slow moving. And so it's been a long period of time um, to get uh, the university to agree to putting those few words on the diploma. Um, they came back from our last, um, our last attempt asking us to do a little bit more market research to show that this kind of program will be popular. Um, and uh, so we're doing that. It's actually you know, very easy to demonstrate how popular these programs are. And so we have uh, you know, every expectation that this, will, that this will go forward in the future. But the plan is still there. I mean, it's, uh, it's still up there on, their web, on the website. The courses are being offered and will be offered indefinitely. Um, and the organization of courses is still there for, for students to do. Mm-hmm. Then there's one final issue. Game design is not for everyone. Let's be clear. We love games, and game design can be an astoundingly creative field. But it's tough. Game companies are famous for burning out employees with long hours, poor management, and an expectation that everyone should be completely devoted to the game. Well, I recommend it to certain types of people. I mean, it's not something you go into if you want the regular 9-to-5 job with, you know, the, the cushy salary and all that stuff. It's something that you go into because you have a real passion for games. Um, I mean... It's definitely a field that, you know, that you can make a living off of, and it's it's definitely a good career path if that's where your passion is. But if you're just looking for, like, just a job, then then yeah, it's not really for you. It's not the kind of thing that that people do unless they they really crazy about games or crazy in general. Steve Engels is a senior lecturer in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Toronto. Nick Graham is a professor of computer science at Queen's University. They both teach game design. Our next guest is also a professor at Ontario University, but he doesn't teach design. Nope, this guy goes one step further. He delves deep inside players' mind to figure out what they're thinking as they play. It's video game psychology and physiology. Hello, my name is Leonard Nakia. I'm an assistant professor in human-computer interaction and game science at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Essentially, Leonard measures our responses to games and picks apart the elements that make us agitated or just zen. He actually got his start on studying the flow state. The flow state is, you know when you're playing a game for an hour straight and all of a sudden everything clicks? You're in the zone. You pass three levels of Tetris without even noticing. You gun down ten people in Call of Duty by instinct. You get your longest time in Super Hexagon. That's the flow state. But there's also a more scientific definition. So flow is um, one of those feelings that you can have when you match your skills um, versus the challenges that you have at hand. So um, it's one of those things that are really interesting to study for gaming because in games we want to keep people engaged and um, flow is one of those feelings that can result from that um, longer engagement that you feel in games, that you feel appropriately challenged at any point in time when you're undertaking one of the game's tasks. So flow is essentially at its heart, like I don't want to go into detail because you can write an entire paper about what uh, flow is and what the prerequisites for flow are and so forth. But um, to give you the basic idea, it's generally uh, trying to match your skills to the challenges at hand. 
picks up on when that five-headed monster makes you sweat, or when your heart leaps because an alien spacecraft just crashed in the middle of a level. When he studied flow, he first looked at first-person shooters. Why? Well, my opinion, it's two different... Um two different kinds of experiences that you can get there. So in all that research that I did, one of the main things um, that I took away from it was that flow is essentially about, uh, or flow is really closely related to something called cognitive absorption, where um, the game at hand um, ideally presents the challenges in a way that you feel cognitively absorbed by the game. So it keeps your brain busy, essentially, when you're interacting with the game. And um, the thing is, you can do that in two ways. Like one of the ways that you can do that is with these split-second decision-making um, that I just talked about in action games, where really you don't have to solve complicated puzzles, you don't have to do any math, um, you just have to sort of, you have to listen to your gut and you have to make the right decision at the right point in time. So it's really more of a twitch skill and really finding the target um, under pressure. Whereas there are other games that are also really easy to get you in flow, um, such as PopCap games, and um, that's that's actually quite interesting. What el- what elements do you find that they ki- that match across first-person shooters and these very rapid uh, puzzle games um, that allow them to like both achieve some results? That's a very good question because that's actually something I teach to my uh, undergrad students in my game design class. Um, because essentially, at the heart, uh, you have the same game design principle, and which is essentially um, making a or trying to find a solution to a problem under time pressure. And uh, the same, it's the same thing uh, if you have it in a first-person shooter or if you have it in a, in a pop cap game. Because oftentimes there is either a timer counting down or there you have to match uh, three within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, um, you lock parts of um, the, the jewels that you're trying to match and so forth. So there's usually something that fills up the screen over time so that you have to keep uh, making those decisions. And sometimes those decisions are just uh, general matching decisions because a lot of these games, uh, if you if you take a, one of the modern examples, Candy Crush, for example, I think uh, there, there a lot of the stuff that's going on there is essentially uh, for you to try to match something under time pressure and that's what makes it so exciting because uh, it keeps your brain busy enough at that point in time um, to to keep you engaged and um, to also feel effortless right um, a lot of times we're, we're right over that threshold so with that we're feeling uh, we're pushing the, the boundaries a little bit because we don't quite know how to find a solution to a problem uh, and it takes a lot of effort to get over that whereas if, if we find that uh, find thin line where we feel like okay we're kind of figuring this out we're figuring out how we can match a certain color to another color and uh, it's slowly getting faster as we are getting better and making a decision we find that we're really uh, at the best of our skills and the challenges that are being presented and of course um, as I said in the beginning that's when this flow state are, is very likely to occur. Give me an example, actually, of a a fix that you could do in a game that would um, that could then increase the, the user experience through the the research that you provided. Okay, so one of the things that um, you could do is, um, for example, let's say you have a driving game and you want to find the optimal speed. So you run an experiment where where you look at three different variables of speed and you want to find which speed threshold is the most exciting threshold. So then you would run an experiment. Um, You'd probably use one of our most recent techniques, which would be biometric storyboards, where uh, essentially you'd have the designer come in, then the designer would draw an experience curve of where where they think at what part of the 
track the player would get most excited. Then we would do, um, as we usually do in biometric storyboards, we would get the player to pl uh, to rate the game, uh, sort of draw their own graph and get an idea of um, when they're excited um, in the game. And then we would put, plug in the physiological measures. We would do a galvanic skin response during gameplay. And then we'd get uh, exactly like the objective graph when the player actually uh, exhibits arousal in the game. And then we would do a matching algorithm to try and find when the player, like when do we have an overlap between designer intention, what the player thought they felt, and what the player actually felt, so that we have um, the overlap between those three. And whenever we don't have an overlap, we see that we uh, obviously have a problem. So then we look at, is it just because the, the person didn't experience it that way? Is it because the person didn't think they were experiencing that it that way? Or is it because the designers actually um, might have been wrong about their initial, initial design assumption and the thing that they thought was actually not exciting is actually quite exciting. So just by providing that feedback back to designer um, allows the designer to have um, a much better overview of the levels that they've actually just developed. Unfortunately, Leonard found that you can't measure flow or abstract concepts like fun or immersion, but Leonard is hardly the only one studying a physiological and psychological response to games. A whole field has opened up while people weren't looking. Do you know how many game companies have psychologists on staff? <laughs> yeah, so I, I wish they would actually call them psychologists, but um, I think Valve is the only one that officially titles uh, one of their uh, staff experimental psychologists. Uh, a lot of the other companies, um, where, where I know a couple of the games user researchers, which is their official title, they've, of, of course, been hired from psychology. So Microsoft Game Studios in Seattle has a lot of... Um, people from psychology that are doing uh, games user research there. Bungie has some, um, um, like I said, Electronic Arts, Ubisoft have a lot. Actually, Ubisoft has uh, people globally that work in that area. Um, Blizzard has some, um, all the big, essentially all the big companies have a user research department nowadays. And it's uh, it's one of those ninja jobs that are not a lot of people know about, but it's the people that do some of the essential fixes in the games to make it more exciting. And um, yeah, I, th I think we will see a lot more of that um, in the future. So right now with my research group, I'm of course training some of, um, well, all of my graduate students are at some point, they're, they're going to be looking for jobs. So of course we're training people specifically for that profile for games user researchers at those big companies. Uh, what benefit do we get from, ha from doing these studies, uh, specifically on flow? How can a designer kind of take what you're, you've been working on and use it to their advantage, or anyone? Yeah, so um, a lot of the studies that I've done, I actually provided at the end uh, some explicit guidelines, or I gave an outline of what exactly I modified. Like, for example, for some of the earlier Half-Life studies, I've actually worked with some of the some game designers on what I should create inside the game level and what variables I want to change. And that's quite hard because we, we generally have this bias when we want to run a psychological study. Um, we have to be very controlled. We have to um, make sure that we don't affect too many variables in the game world so we don't influence um, the game outcome in a certain way. So by using Half-Life 2 back then, I had a really powerful toolkit in terms of keeping a lot of factors consistent across the levels uh, where I would only change the different variables that are, um, that are interesting for me. And um, I, th I think part of that um, is actually what a lot of uh, games user researchers, um, which nowadays is a is a, actually a big field um, with games companies, are interested in that they want to look at certain 
parts in their game and want to look at whether or not they're working effectively. Now, one of the recent things um, that Valve did is... Uh, so, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about that because I, I was actually... I finished my PhD and um, then I saw an article that uh, Gabe Newell published um, online where he said, we're, we're really excited about these measures, physiological measures, and we want to investigate them. So, uh, which was funny because uh, I had just worked on his game essentially for the past uh, four years uh, doing all that physiological stuff. So I sent him a personal email and said, hey, Gabe, I'm, I'm doing this kind of research. What do you think about it? And uh, he immediately put me in contact with one of his uh, psychologists on staff. And um, yeah, I basically called him the next day and then we started talking about all this stuff. So it was, uh, it was very exciting to actually see that uh, real Gabe companies uh, do care about this kind of research and they, they were actually actively interested and uh, obviously um, he now uh, the psychologist now ha has had a lot of GDC talks and kind of um, is really working uh, in this uh, psychophysiological area quite a bit, and uh, that's where I think it's kind of exciting to see how some of that, um, uh, some of the, these um, research uh, studies that we um, produce are uh, actually influencing how people are changing their view on what kind of user research needs to be done on games. I, I don't want to ramble. So one of the one of the things I want to say here is um, that essentially you're looking when you're designing a game, you're looking at a second order design problem, right? You can't really design the experience itself. You, you're designing the artifact, you're designing the game, you're designing the rules, but you can't design the experience. The experience comes from whatever you put in the game. So this is why I find this really um, a fascinating field to do research in, because we to get closer to the optimal experience, the experience that we want to create as a designer, we need to be able to evaluate it. And um, with all these methods that I've developed, we have a lot of really good methods at hand that we can develop, uh, that we can evaluate these uh, experiences that we have in games. And now it's much easier to go back and go back to the designers and then say, you know, if you just change this variable, you're very likely to change a certain variable in the experience um, in the game. So it becomes much better, um, or we have much better tools through this to create actual experiences. And we go beyond just creating games. We're creating um, exciting experiences for players. That's again. That's just fascinating. The idea that you can <laughs> you can get it. You you're really getting gameplay experience right down to a, to a science. And to some extent, though, I I wonder if some people are going to have a bad reaction to knowing that there are psychologists working on these games. To the extent that, I mean, people are already worried about the connect being able to see their movements and spy on them. At some point, uh, getting psycho getting psychological readings. I mean, not while you're playing the game, but earlier on, that can be that can seem a little weird. Uh, well, yeah, and if you if you read any uh, any of the articles, you know, once this stuff becomes popular science and people start publishing about it, and they're saying you know there's psychologists working on your game, the first re reaction you get from Reddit or from Slashdot is like, oh my God, they're trying to influence us, they're trying to hack our brains, and that's really not the truth, right? Like, we, yes, we're trying to understand the humans, and we're trying to make these games more exciting for people, but it's usually with a good intention because we want to provide better entertainment, or we want to see um, if we can uh, find any of these um, parts of the game experience that work really well and we want to use that to make other experiences that are really boring like some learning experience that i'm pretty sure you've experienced in your career at some point as well um, that are just not exciting right and if we can only hack some of these um, pieces of games and find out what's exciting about them we can then apply that to other parts um, that are not so exciting so this is i think where um, there, there's a lot of good that can be done with this understanding of what makes things exciting for us Thanks so much for your time, Leonard. Thank you very much. Leonard Knack is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Business and Information Technology at the UOIT. For those of you interested in 
game design, and physiology. Leonard has an announcement for you. We're organizing a conference called Highplay in the next year. It's going to be uh, hosted in Toronto, and it's for every researcher that's excited about human-computer interaction and games. And we hope to see a lot of you guys there. Let's stop talking about game design and get into the grit of game development. Let's get as far away from psychology, universities, and Canada as possible. Instead, how about we go back 20 years to outside San Mateo, California, where Blizzard North was just opening its doors. Back then, it was just called Condor, but within three years, they were bought by Blizzard and working on the seminal action role-playing game, Diablo. Diablo is a demonic-themed game where you play as a warrior descending into the depths of hell. Uh, it has a few sequels, and you may, maybe, have played them. I discovered Diablo in 1996, probably the summer of that year. I had an uncle, uh, Brad, who who worked at, uh, well, he didn't work at Blizzard North yet. He came on later, but he became, he met those guys playing a roller hockey with them. That's author David Craddock. He has a very personal connection to the original Diablo. Uh, he, he became friends with them, and they started uh, hooking him up with internal betas, and he sent one to me that I think was released to the public later that year as part of the Game Sampler 2 disc for Windows 95 that was uh, put together uh, with demos from Blizzard and a number of other companies to kind of promote DirectX and Windows 95 as the next big gaming platform on PC. And it was kind of funny because I had a PC at the time that was a, a 4666 megahertz machine with maybe eight megabytes of RAM and so, you know, in Diablo, you didn't run, you could only walk, but my guy moved even slower. It was like he was wading through waist-high water, but I couldn't get enough of it. It was only two levels long, it always ended in the Butcher, but I played it over and over and over again. I think you could only create the Warrior, if uh, memory serves. But it was still just so fun because, of course, both of those two levels were randomly generated every time, and, you know, different monsters, different loot would drop, and I played it so often uh, that the map grid would kind of burn against my eyelids when I would go to bed at 4 or 5 in the morning. He loved the game so much, he wrote a whole book on the game called Stay a While and Listen. Fast forward a little while, I got the full version and, and just kept playing it. And when I graduated high school in 2000, I went out to California uh, on my Uncle Brad's uh, tab, I guess. He, he and my aunt uh, paid for me to go out and stay with them for a week as a graduation gift. And that was June of 2000, about a week before Diablo 2 shipped. So it had gone gold and things at Blizzard North were kind of settling down. Those guys had crunched for 18 months and finally finished their game. And I got to go in, I got to shake some hands. I met Dave Brevik and Max Schaefer, two of the three co-founders of the company. I met uh, John Morin, one of my uncle's good friends, who was a programmer on the game. He actually took me into his office and spawned Diablo himself in the Act 1 encampment, so I got to watch Diablo run around and throw fire and kill off the NPCs, which of course is not supposed to happen. And it it was just a real honor for me and a pleasure getting to meet those guys, you know, kind of the getting to step behind the curtain and meeting the Wizard of Oz, uh, several wizards who've made some of my favorite games. Were there any scenes that you particularly liked but just you couldn't find a space for in the book? Uh, most of the, the scenes that I felt were important definitely made it in because they were so core to the story. Uh, I, I guess my favorite would be at the end of Chapter 8, I describe uh, David Brevik sitting down 
uh, alone in the office and working for three hours to convert Diablo from a turn-based game like XCOM and Civilization to real time. And, you know, I just, I loved hearing him recount the moment he, he compiled a build of the game and dropped in his warrior and a skeleton in a small room and clicked the skeleton and the warrior just marched over and shattered the skeleton. I, I actually had that scene in my head for, for probably two years and I was just so excited to get down, uh, down on paper and I'm proud of how that scene, that scene is probably my favorite in the whole book. I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. So yeah, I, I'd say I got every scene in the book that, that I wanted, but also, you know, taking my opinion out of it, I also got all the scenes that needed to be there. What attracts you so much to that scene? It, it captured, that's a great question. It captured the spirit of that time. You know, today I feel like game development is obviously still creative, but it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And a lot of companies are so structured, you have to go through processes. And even though it's always been a team sport, so to speak, I mean, except for the days way back when, when you had one programmer doing everything on his Apple II, um, it was really cool to see someone just get an idea, sit down, and just do it. No structure, no processes, no democratic process, as, as important as that can be at times. Just sit down and make something. I think that also... I mean, the 90s were my favorite time in game development because games, most of the graphics in games kind of sucked. So you had to rely on fun gameplay and you could really see a lot of creativity shining through the seams on 16-bit cartridges and floppy disks because the, the de designers and developers who made those games weren't focused about photorealistic graphics and that sort of thing. They just wanted to make something fun. And I guess it was just that entrepreneurial spirit that that calls to me as a writer. I just like to, if I get an idea, I can just sit down and do it. And I, I just thought that was really fun, and I wanted to capture that spirit on paper. So one thing I really liked about the book was it really is a story about young people growing up within uh, as they make this company. So mm -hmm. we do get these shots of, of them kind of fooling around at, their, uh, at, at the early stages of Condor and when they're rolling around in scooters and buying nice cars. Um, have, though, people like Max Schaefer, Eric Sexton, or da uh, David Brevik attitudes changed about what they did um, in the early days of the company? No, in fact, quite the opposite. A lot of them miss it. Uh, Blizzard North, and this is something I cover in more detail in books, uh, books two and three of Stay Wallace. And but Blizzard North eventually got a little too big for its britches. In that, Dave, Max, and Eric excelled when they could steer a smaller ship, a team of fifteen to maybe no greater than thirty people. Um, Dave has since gone on to manage Gazillion, which is a larger company that kind of acts as an umbrella for several smaller companies. So he's gotten very good at, at management. He uh, takes a lot of pride in it, and he's worked at it. But Max and Eric at Runic Games, where they make a Torchlight today, they intentionally have kept their team at no greater than probably 30 to 35 people because they, they realize that's their sweet spot. That's where they do their best work. Um, it, it doesn't get too unwieldy and, and difficult to control. Uh, and, and, you know, talking with them, I mean, I think you can definitely get that vibe, especially in later books you'll read where they just, they realized, well, we didn't really want to grow an empire. We should have kind of put the, put the lid on it, maybe stayed to one team that was all, you know, everyone focused and honed in on this one, on bringing this one idea to life. Whereas on the other side of the fence, Blizzard Entertainment, those guys, as I, as I write 
Instawa, and listen, they wanted to build an empire. They set out to become the biggest game developer in the world. So it was kind of interesting seeing that the two blizzards started on kind of the same footing, but eventually their paths diverged and they went in these, these separate directions. That was really interesting to Chronicle. In fact, each of the three Stay Well and Listen books, this was originally going to be one book, but it was taking so long to work on because, of course, I only just started getting money from selling this book. It was five years of just the labor of love. But one thing I really interested that really interested me and that my wife helped me see was that by splitting the book, I could devote three books to each of the three Diablo games, each of which was made during such a different and fascinating time period. I mean, book one is the kind of rags to ridges by the bootstraps period. Book two is when the game industry really starts growing and more people come into Blizzard North and they're very talented, but in a in sort of an unprecedented event, they are bringing baggage with them. They are bringing prior experience and many of them are saying, well, this is how we did things elsewhere. And that kind of muddies the water at Blizzard North because they have their own uh, methodology and ideologies about how to do things. And then book three is when you know the games industry is just this huge machine and if a cog slips out, oh well, just slip another one in. And so I think that by breaking it into three books, I think readers will really get to, to zero in and study uh, how the games industry grew and not just the two blizzards, but how the industry matured and maybe took some, some wrong turns along the way. What makes the book so fascinating is that we have it at all. The games industry is notorious for keeping things secret. It's riddled with non-disclosure agreements. Even if an employee is laid off, it's hard to get a word out about the games they worked on. That wasn't a big deal of Diablo. Blizzard released that game in 1996. But David still has two more books left in this series. And the closer he gets to the present and Diablo 3, the more problems he's going to have. Well, you've had a lot of experience covering um, game development in, in your past, on top of this book. Um, why do you think developers are occasionally resistant to getting their stories out there? Because the game industry is so small and incestuous. I mean, you, you could be sitting at lunch with a bunch of guys, say 20, 30 people, all at the same company. A week later, you could have lunch with those same group of guys, but each of you could be involved in a different company, and yet you still know each other. So it's a matter of not burning bridges and even avoiding sloshing kerosene around because you might need that uh, that bridge later. I mean, I'm even trying to to kind of nudge someone into working with me on a book about a certain game that was released. Uh, <laughs> um, ugh, I don't want to be too vague, but you know, they, they essentially they don't want to burn the bridge with the publisher because even though they don't ever plan on working with this publisher again, you never know. They might have to. So it was really easy to talk to Blizzard North people because, of course, Blizzard North closed its doors, or rather had its doors closed for them in 2005, so there were no NDAs to work on. I mean, there were some, I guess, but I wasn't given specifics and it didn't interfere with any questions I asked. Um, I have spoken to a lot of people at Blizzard Entertainment on the condition of anonymity, so I can hope that by book three, readers will trust me enough to know that I've, I've definitely done my research, even though I can't cite people uh, I mean, I'm not making up quotes or anything. And also, book three is probably a few years down the line. So what I'm hoping is that, um, and as has already happened, Blizzard might shake loose a few leaves that I can go and round up and say, hey, can I bring you into the fold now that you're no longer under NDA at Blizzard? So that's my hope with three. I already have quite a bit of information, but you know, there's still a lot to flesh out and build there. All right, David, thank you so much for your time. You've been a wonder to talk to. Oh, great. Thank you. I was looking forward to it. I hope your listeners enjoy the interview.
David Craddock is the author of the history series Stay a While and Listen. Each book is set to cover the development of one Diablo game. Get the book at your local ebook dispensary. Rounding off our show is another author. This time, let's hear from sci-fi author Peter Watts. So, first of all, give people an introduction into who you are for those who don't know the great Peter Watts. I'm I'm kind of, well, I'm not the great Peter Watts. I'm kind of the fallen marine biologist Peter Watts. Um, My formal background is is in marine mammalogy, and I kind of ran screaming from the political bullshit of academia, I guess, back in the mid-90s. And since then, I've been mainly a writer. I still do the occasional bit of scientific consulting, but it's pretty monkey monkey work stuff. Peter's a fairly well-acclaimed novelist who happens to live not too far from the studio. He's won the Hugo Award for the novella The Island and was a finalist for Blindsight. But he also wrote the novelization of Crisis 2, Crisis Legion. I was actually scouted. Um, this, this generally seems to... I've, I've, had a few, uh, I've had a few video game gigs, and what generally happens is that somebody on the factory floor um, decides they like your writing and gets it into their head that that um, somehow somebody who writes the kind of novels that I write would make a kick-ass game. So in this particular, at this particular time, um, some guys on the factory floor in, in Frankfurt decided that uh, they had built all the levels for the game, but they suddenly realized that they didn't actually have a story to string any of them together. Um, so they needed to bring someone in for that. And um, unbeknownst to them, higher-ups in the same company had already, like Electronic Arts was their distributor, and they'd already reached out to Richard Morgan, who they'd had experience with in the past. Um, So Richard and I, who are actually kind of mutual fans anyway from before this time, um, ended up sort of (coughs) divvying up the gig whereby he kind of wrote the script and I wrote the novel based based on his script. Did you really have a choice when they offered you this? in terms of whether you take it or not? Is it something that you were interested in? Well, it's a... I mean, there's always a choice, you know? You could always choose to starve. Um, I'm a mid-list science fiction writer. Um, At the time uh, that that gig was offered to me, I I had not won my Hugo. So I was, and still am to a large extent, a pretty obscure science fiction writer compared to, you know, some of the other big names out there. and they pay a lot of money compared to what you get from your standard public publishing deal. So, so um, if I wanted to be an idiot or if I had taken a vow of poverty, I certainly had a choice. Narrative in games is often an afterthought. If the developers decide to trash a level, a writer has to be able to work around that. I probably had to trash about a third of what was going on. Um, every now and then they would send me an alpha build and it would take like, you know, six hours to load it from the server and then it would immediately crash as soon as I ran it or, or you know, the protagonist would end up suddenly for no apparent reason gravity would fail and the protagonist would end up like 6,000 feet above the landscape and there'd basically be nothing you could do except look at your own toes dangling over the cityscape. Um, there wasn't... There isn't an official script in these things as such. Uh, it, it tends to be kind of a fly by the seat of your pants. But after all, if you want to know what happens in the story, in the game, you play the damn game. Uh, that wasn't the role I saw for the novel in the first place. Uh, what I saw for the novel, my own personal mission, what, what made it interesting for me was... I was essentially trying to rehabilitate the fundamental stupidity of video games. 
in any real scenario, the game would end after the credits rolled and a big Monty Python foot would come down and crush you. I mean, we're a band of lemurs next to these guys. Lemurs aren't going to be able to take on um, an F-16, to, to use a, a reasonable analogy. So what was fun was not so much telling the story as justifying it, trying to come up with things sort of post hoc that would make all of these dumb things, which are essential for good gameplay, but don't make any sense at all, logically, uh, try and make them fit, try and rationalize them. And that got me into a lot of backstory. It got me into a lot of... Um, and there were some things that I probably snuck by the CEO who, if, if English had been his first language, probably never would have made it in because it would have been too dark. I was told out, you know, outright that, that uh, certain things would be too dark. I managed to sneak him in anyway. I didn't manage to sneak in... Um, homoerotic Iron Man, um, which was how I described the, the, the suit at one point. Um, apparently that would be, was considered too mocking. And there was this one spot where the guy starts to wonder why every time he tries to go right, it's like clear sailing all the way to the horizon. But whenever he tries to go left, there's always like a wall or the stairwell that he just went down has collapsed and there's no way to get back up. And he starts to wonder if, in fact, he is being herded by some, some weird omniscient deity. And maybe the aliens with their ham-fisted stomping around and knocking over buildings and doing all this, this violent shit, maybe that's all just a distraction. Maybe the aliens are way, way subtler and they're just sort of, they've got the butterfly by the wings and they're, they're doing all these weird resonant things and they're basically running us like rats through this maze. And my editor, I didn't, that didn't even get as far as, as, as Crytek. My editor, oh no, you've broken the fourth wall. You can't do that. People will think you're mocking the game, which is, well, yeah. <laughs> but I was mocking it with love. Peter is a hard sci-fi writer. So while they didn't ask him for plot, they did ask about technology. The designers of Crisis 2, Crytek, they didn't know how the main character's nanotech armor that he uses to fight aliens could work in real life. I sort of extrapolated Moore's Law to 2019, figured out how many teraflops we would have, that kind of thing. And in the in the novelization, when, when the suit booted up, you'd get this little canned voice going, ho, 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 ho. And the, the, uh, the slogan, the advertising slogan was, um, with Santa at the battlefield, it's like every war is Christmas. <laughs> and it's like, and, and so it was very, it was, you know, oh, no. We have to call it second because Santa just, it, it sounds like you're mocking, you know. And I managed to slip that in a little bit in the actual book by having, you know, we called it second, but then at the bottom I had this little note. Or no, no, we called it Santa, but then we had this little note at the bottom from the guys in marketing saying, oh, we don't think you can do that um, because it might it might outrage um, certain religious people. My understanding is that Santa is some kind of Christian icon. Um, it was, you know, so I, I managed to, to sneak that through. One thing I did get through um, was the uh, a power plug-in because nobody actually could figure out the the nano suit doesn't really deal with what powers. I mean, it can do a shitload, right? Um, nobody really came up with what the power supply would be, so I had to do some research for that. And one of the things I one of the ideas I came up with was, um, hey, bomb calorimetry um, energy content of just raw protein is pretty high, and the one thing you're not going to run out of on a battlefield is bodies. So I imagined essentially this kind of a giant hypodermic that you could basically plug into dead bodies on the battlefield and, and metabolize carrion, right? And so I called it the Necroorganic Metabolites Plugin, or NOM. And that's, that was something else that, that probably would not have gotten by a CEO who's English, who spoke English as a first language. Um, 
but we managed to sneak into the brochure. That's probably why they didn't ask me to work for them again, actually. It probably, <laughs> after all this stuff went, went down, they probably realized what I had pulled and, and decided to go with someone else for the next book. That sounds like a that sounds like a way more interesting world than they had to be honest. I mean, Crisis Two for all the successes that game has, I mean, it's fairly limited by its by its linearity. Well, you know, again, you can still come up with some interesting um, ramifications. Like one of the things I mentioned in the book that I was not allowed to, or I was told would never fly, but I think I managed. To, I think what it came down to is that. Um, the guys running the show, uh, Chevet and his and his bros um, at Crytek, didn't have a, a strong grasp of how glacially things move in the book industry. Um, as far as they were concerned, you know, you can be cutting and splicing and editing right up to release date because that's how it works in games. And the idea that they had to sign off on something six months before it it went into production was something that, like, uh, Chevet was was like literally perplexed and angry. He simply couldn't wrap his head around that kind of a time delay. And I think that's what saved my ass in some ways, because at some point he basically, somebody had to read him the riot act and say, you know, you can't hold this up any longer. And he hadn't had a chance to read it yet. So I managed to get some of this stuff in here. And one of the things I managed to get in, in was that, that um, Richard Morgan had this great idea that the suit was actually keeping the guy alive. But that, you know, his, his you know, lungs had been shredded and his heart was gone. And this was the actual phrase, his heart was gone. And so I was working on the, the novel of this and I think, okay, wait a second. We looked at the timing here. It takes a couple of hours from point A to point B. If his heart's gone, he's not going to survive long enough to get into the suit. You just can't do that. And yet, here's the point where they run this scan on him and he doesn't have a heart. Mm -hmm. So I tried to rationalize that. Um, by saying, okay, what the suit is doing, it's, you know, it's this weird alien nanotech. What it's essentially doing is robbing Peter to pay Paul. The suit is actually cannibalizing his own organ systems um, in order to reconstruct the central nervous system, which is what it really needs. It doesn't need muscle. It doesn't need a lot of that stuff because it's, it's basically autonomous. It can run itself. I mean, this, the whole question is, I mean, basically by the end of the book, the character has outsourced most of his cognition to this chip, and you don't actually know. I mean, you actually see throughout the course of the book his, his vocabulary changes depending on whether the chip is doing the thinking for him or whether he's thinking or whether he's talking. So, which was a really easy, convenient way for me to convey scientific concepts through the mouth of a grunt who basically played video games and had no real formal background, right? Um, but this chip did. So I managed to play around with that a lot. And the idea that, that essentially by the end of the game, what you're essentially dealing with is a brain and a nervous system and maybe a few shards of bone and tissue, but the rest of it has been metabolized in order to repair the really vital systems. Um, I really liked the idea of that, the, the sort of the nature of humanity and how much of humanity can be outsourced while retaining its essential humanness, that kind of thing. Um, and all that was there. In the game, yes, it was a lame, linear, on-a-rail game. But the potential, you know, I did not invent that potential. I saw what Richard had done, and I, I, I ran with it. But all that stuff can be explored in a game if you don't have some chicken shit market person saying, oh, no, we don't want to, we don't want to alienate the fundamentalist demographic. Fair enough, fair enough. What, so... Um, what would you say are ideal examples that you've seen? You've mentioned Portal 2 of games that have managed to pull off 
um, despite kind of the conceits of games and limit limitations. Um, great narrative. <sighs> there was a game called. Um... There are a couple of games, uh, Star Contr- uh, Starflight and and Starflight 2, uh, Trade Routes of the Cloud Nebula, mm-hmm. played on DOS, and it was like, you know, amber monitors and stuff, monotone, 8-bit sound, in which essentially you're Captain Kirk. You choose your crew, you go out, you start exploring over the course of your exploration, over the course of mining and gathering resources, the standard harvesting scenario that we see even today. Um, a larger picture starts to emerge. And... There's wonderful, like, there's this civil war between these intelligent reptiles and these intelligent plants. And it turns out that the reason they're fighting is because the reptiles eat the genitals of the plants as a delicacy. And that's how it all started. But you can ally with one and not the other. And it changes the dynamics of the game. Um, You have a communications officer. So you don't have, this is something that's always bugged me about games with with dialogue, is that when you, the character, unless you're... um, unless you're, you know, Freeman, there's going to be a point where your character has to interact. And generally what happens is you get some kind of a drop-down menu where you get to say one or two, and it's really artificial. Um, and this game was far more primitive. I mean, this is, this is your stone knives and bearskins computer age. And, uh, but they had, you, had a, you, you chose your communications officer, and you could tell your communications officer what to ask about. And you could tell them what kind of attitude to adopt. So you, we, could be, we could be kind of servile, or we could be belligerent or we could be neutral or we could be friendly and so you could choose these options of the tone you wanted to take and the kind of things you wanted to ask and then your communications officer depending on how skilled they were in translation so on would ask these things in different ways um so that put a bit of a layer away so you didn't have to like you weren't limited to your your kind of deus ex for different options of things that you can say and you always have those four options and and you basically just go through the tree to find out what you need and then you move on to the next waypoint um and that had some good it had good storytelling you know horrible graphics and stuff it was state-of-the-art for the time great storytelling a terrific punchline at the end but uh the ones that really blow me away with the depth of their storytelling are the ones that are the crappiest in terms of actual gameplay graphics. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It was a blast. Peter Watts is the author of Blindside and the Rifters trilogy. He also wrote Crisis Legion. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armand Agbali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of Christine Love and Nick Graham. And with the help of... Leonard Nakim. Steve Engels. Uh, David Craddock. And Peter Watts. Remember to leave a review on iTunes so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show, but only leave a positive review because if you leave a negative one, we'll open a portal to hell and leave your legs here. This is our last episode of the year, but we will be back in the third week of January. We'll still update the site every Sunday with extended interviews from past few weeks and our upcoming series. Yes, a series on the history of Final Fantasy, going from the first to the worst. Um, But before it goes online, it'll be on the air every Saturday and Thursday at 1 p.m. And you can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Florcon. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen, and I hear that those terrible portals have a lovely Christmas music. Happy holidays, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>